0: he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. But he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God." King of kings and Lord of lords. This vision of a warrior on a white horse leading the armies of heaven also on white horses, as we said, is of Jesus. But it's not Jesus the lamb as we've seen him earlier. He's Jesus the warrior. Now, the Old Testament promises a Messiah who is both conquering warrior and suffering servant. But most Jews latched onto the conquering warrior part and were largely unprepared to receive Jesus when he first came to them as a suffering servant. It was just not what they were expecting. They didn't realize, of course, that he was going to come twice. But now in this vision, he comes the second time as a conquering warrior messiah, finally. These six verses tell us four things about what he looks like, four things about what he does, and four things about what he's called. So let's go over them. First of all, what he looks like. Verse 12 says his eyes are like a flame of fire. Very similar to the words used in the vision in Revelation 1. And this again speaks of the power of his eyes. That he sees everything and judges everything. Then, also in verse 12, it says, On his head are many diadems. Of course, diadems are crowns, they represent authority. The dragon had seven diadems, the beast had ten diadems, representing their seemingly total authority. But here, Christ trumps them both, for he has many diadems. He is the king of kings. And Lord of Lords. Verse 13 tells us he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now this raises the question of whose blood is on his robe. Is it his own blood symbolic of his own death or is it the blood of his foes? It seems to be the blood of his foes for a number of reasons. First, the context is one of war, and he is a warrior with a sword. Also, there's a very similar vision of Christ judging the nations in Isaiah chapter 63, where this figure appears. And the question is asked who is this who comes in crimson garments? Marching in the greatness of his strength. And then this figure answers. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the question is asked, why is your apparel red? And your garments like those who tread in the wine press? And he answers, I have trodden the winepress in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. So this seems to answer the question explicitly of what blood is on his white robe. But it also connects the robe dipped in blood here in verse 13 with the treading of the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God two verses later in 15. The fourth thing that we're told about what he looks like is in verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp Sword. Now, in Jesus' first coming, people marveled at the gracious words which came from his mouth in Luke 4.22. But now, in his second coming, there's a sharp sword coming from his mouth. The sharp sword also refers to his words. But now, it's not words of redemption he speaks but words of judgment. They are the words by which he strikes down the nations. In all the Bible passages about the judgment day, the one aspect that's missing everywhere is of any kind of real struggle or prolonged battle. Consistently, as soon as the Lord shows up, The battle is over. God created the world with the words of his mouth. And every indication from scripture is that the weapon with which he will judge the world is also the words of his mouth. Here depicted as a sharp sword. Compare this to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 he's talking about the Antichrist. Then the lawlessness, I'm sorry, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Again, it's apparently his words there are four things that we're told about what he does. And these four things that we're told about what he does have a lot of overlap. It's all about judgment. In 11 it says in righteousness he judges and makes war. In 15 from his mouth issues a sharp sword to strike down the nations. And also in verse 15, he will rule them with a rod of iron. And of course, that comes from Psalm 2, where the Messiah dashes them, the nations in pieces with a rod of iron. Then also in verse 15, it says, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now you know a wine press is a large vat, open vat filled with grapes and people get into it and stomp on the grapes so that the juices will come out. The idea here is that God is crushing his enemies in his wrath. And now four things he is called this passage Christ is called by four names faithful and true the word of God king of kings and lord of lords and then there's a name written no one knows but himself so let's talk about these he's called faithful and true he's the one who keeps his promises and does what he says he's always warned people that he will one day come to judge mankind and now he has come to do it. He is faithful and true to what he says. Verse 13, he is the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is the same thing that John said at the beginning of his gospel. You remember the same writer in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus referred to the Word as the Jesus is referred to as the Word of God because He is the way God expresses Himself, the ultimate way. He's the way God communicates Himself. He is the epitome of God's revelation of Himself. Then in verse 16, on his robe and thigh he has a new name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, he's fighting against kings and kingdoms. All of them seem so powerful and unstoppable until the King of Kings shows up. But name is a little trickier. In verse 12 he has a name written that no one knows but himself. So let me spend a little bit of time on that. There are a few things similar to this elsewhere but they pertain not to the name of the Lord but always to the name of his people. For instance earlier in Revelation in 2.17 We read, to the one who conquers, I will give a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is similar to Isaiah 62, which talks about a future day when Jerusalem will receive a new name, showing their new intimate relationship with God. Listen, I'm abridging these verses, but they're all here. You shall be called, in fact, we used to sing this song. Maybe someday we will again. You shall be called by a new name that the Lord will give you. You shall no longer be called forsaken. And your land shall no more be called desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I think this gives us a good hint about the name that no one knows but himself in 1912. The new name has to do with marriage. That's when you receive a new name. And now, even more profoundly, we find out that not only does the bride receive a new name, but the groom, Christ himself, receives a new name. He was always creator. And then he was savior and redeemer. But now he is bridegroom. Now he is called married. Now he has the name husband. But there's more. In Isaiah, I'm sorry, in Revelation 17, 5, it says that the great prostitute had a name of mystery written on her forehead. As if you know we're not supposed to know what that name is, but then a few verses later, it tells us what the name is: Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and earth and of Earth's abominations. So the written name is stated as a mystery, but then immediately we're told what the name is, Babylon the Great. So there the mystery doesn't seem to refer to keeping the name Babylon a secret but to discovering the proper meaning of the known name in the light of its historical situation, significance. So it's possible that the confidential nature of the name has nothing to do with the name itself being concealed, but has to do with Christ's people coming to realize the mystery of a name they already knew what that name means when they see him face to face and the two become one in marriage. On that day, he will fully reveal himself to his bride. The last chapter of Revelation tells us in verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And before moving on, we should mention that in this vision, Christ has his army with him. Verse 14 tells us this, The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now elsewhere in the New Testament, armies of angels accompany Christ from heaven in executing his final judgment. And there are many examples of this. So this may seem like a no-brainer. But for a couple reasons, it seems wiser to think that these are actually God's people, the saints, and not angels. First, six of the seven times that Revelation speaks of someone wearing white robes, it's talking about saints and not angels. 15.6 15.6 being the one exception but more than that in the same context just a couple of chapters earlier a parallel passage in Revelation 17.14 says the Lamb will overcome them speaking about the same battle, the same war the same confrontation, the Lamb will overcome them, his enemies, and though who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful that's language that's only used to describe God's people not angels Okay, so now the next section Revelation 19 17 to 19 which is about the battle or what there was of it I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So here in anticipation of a great bloodbath, an angel calls to the birds of prey to gather for a great feast but instead of this being followed by the Lord shouting charge or attack as you might expect it's followed by the beasts the kings of the earth and their armies gathering to make war against Christ and his army we usually think of the judgment day as God going after his enemies but here we zoom in and we see that actually shows up in this vision and they attack him. In a sense this is what mankind wanted all along. When he showed up the first time it didn't take long till so they went after him. He was but a baby and eventually they killed him. But then he rose from the dead and after he rose from the dead they were never able to get their hands on him again. Until Now All they could do was go after God's people. But now, just as they're attacking God's people, he shows up in their defense, and they're ready to pounce. Their hatred was obviously overpowered by their... I'm sorry. Their hatred has obviously overpowered their rationality. How foolish it is to fight against the one who spoke all things into existence by the word of his mouth. How foolish it is to attack the very one who gives strength to your arms and breath to your lungs. And yet they do so. But God knew this would happen. And he called the birds of prey to clean up the mess. We have to notice the contrast Between the the two great suppers in chapter 19. Last week we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And here we talk about this great judgment supper of God. The saints are invited to the one. The birds of prey to the other. The third section tells us the results of the battle. Verse 20 and 21. So here we've come to the final showdown between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman prophesied from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15. At his first coming, they bruised Christ's heel while he delivered a fatal blow. But here finally, they are being thrown into the lake of fire once and for all. And notice the order Four evil characters have been introduced to us in verses, in chapters 12 to 17. You remember the dragon was re- introduced first, then the beast, then the second beast, who was later called the false prophet, and finally Babylon the great prostitute. And now the characters are being removed in opposite order. First, Babylon falls, the great prostitute, in chapter 18. And then the false prophet, and then the beast in chapter 19. And finally, which we'll see next, the dragon will be thrown into the lake of fire in chapter 20. You see, all along, our battle has not been against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these monsters are exactly what Paul was talking about there in Ephesians 6.12. So now, in conclusion, as we look at this passage as a whole, my beloved friends, whether we like it or not, whether we believe it or not, This is where everything is headed. This passage tells us that history will end in a time of great war. The devil and his forces have always opposed God. But the rebellion will culminate in one last ferocious battle. And as we're told in Acts 17.31... God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that man is Jesus Christ. Yes, he's kind and gracious. Yes, he's reaching out to every man with a gracious offer of life. The first time he came, he came as a servant and in humility if defeating his enemies had been his only agenda he could have just come as a warrior the first time and gotten it all over with but he also wanted to save his bride and so he came as a sacrificial lamb first and when he returns those who received him will be treated with a generosity and an affection beyond our imagination But those who have refused him, those who have repudiated him in spite of his grace, he will come to them as a fierce warrior. That's not my opinion. That's what the Bible says over and over again. So don't be a fool. Hoping it isn't true doesn't make it untrue. What your family and your friends think of you doesn't matter. What God thinks of you is everything. So open your heart to him. Come to him. Surrender your life to him. He has a love you'll find nowhere else. Some people actually prefer the conquering warrior Jesus. Others prefer the meek and mild, gentle Jesus. But guess what? We don't get to pick which Jesus we prefer. Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is meek and compassionate, but he is also furious and terrifying. see this all through Revelation. Here in this particular passage Jesus judges and makes war. His eyes are flames of fire and has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth and he rules over the nations with a rod of iron treading the winepress of the wrath of God. But just before this in 7 to 9, and, and just 20 verses after this, in 21, 2 to 4, this same Jesus is intimately marrying his beloved bride and moving in with her. He is tenderly wiping away the tears from her eyes and taking away their mourning and their crying and their pain. You see, Jesus is both. One thing Jesus is not is boring can you imagine standing beside or standing before the one with eyes like flames of fire and having trouble staying awake if there was ever a place where it ought to be easy to stay awake it's in the presence of this one and yet this is the same Christ to which we pray every day And it is the same one who we have trouble paying attention to. Not because of who he is, but because of our own hearts. How foolish to be unengaged. How foolish to care more about earthly comforts and successes. How foolish to care more about what other people think of us. Lord, help us not to be excited by the prostitute with all of her beauty and allure. Not to be enamored by the false prophet with all his convincing philosophies and amazing miracles. Not to be impressed by the beast with all his political power and domination. They will all fall. Help us rather, Lord, to be enthralled by the one sitting on the white horse. Who is called faithful and true. The word of God. The king of kings and lord of lords. The lamb and the great bridegroom. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Only he is worthy of our worship. Awe and love. For he was slain. And by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we've never seen you with our eyes. But we thank you that you have given us vivid pictures of yourself over and over again in your word. Lord, we know that there's no response that is fitting except that we melt in wonder before these glimpses. But dear Lord, we thank you that one day our faith will be turned to sight and we will see you face to face And be transformed by that vision. O Lord, may we live today with that day in mind. May we hunger and long for that day, O Lord. Because now, not only don't we see, but our hearts are so impure. And so earthly oriented, and so full of pride and desire for human approval. Please, O Lord, may we tremble before you, both in fear and in love and in desire with you and to know you forever meet us now O Lord in the Lord's Supper which gives us but a tiny little glimpse of this great supper which is to come pray in the precious name of Jesus